If I were to ask you this question, who are you? Who are you? And you were to answer the question with, I am fill in the blank. You could answer it based upon your nationality. You could say, I am Greek. Or you could answer it based upon your passions or interests. I am a Celtic fan. I am a, where's Pastor Stephen, Pastor Mike? I'm a Laker hater. I am a musician. I am a runner. Or you could even answer it based upon your citizenship. Recently, in March 2nd, the Steinmans became citizens of the United States. You could say, I'm a United States citizen. But if somebody were to ask you that question in a different light, in light of your faith, and they asked you, well, who are you? You say that you are a Christian, but what does that mean? Who are you? And you were to answer them, I am fill in the blank. What would you say? You could say, I am a child of God. I am a child of God, because that is precious, is it not? The Apostle John wrote in his epistle, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. Or you could answer, I am a follower of Jesus. Did not Christ himself, his call and invitation, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me? Or you could answer, I am a sinner saved by grace. That's Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. A sinner who deserves to be condemned, who is dead in trespasses and sins, but God, because of his grace. But would you answer that question like this? I am a citizen of heaven. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, as we look at this text briefly this morning. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The Apostle Paul's main point and main thrust in this text this morning that we are looking at is this. He is showing the stark contrast between those who are enemies of the cross of Christ and those who are citizens of heaven. He wants to show the stark contrast between the enemies of the cross and citizens of heaven. He's actually been doing that throughout the whole chapter of chapter 3. Notice earlier in the chapter, he paints this picture of the stark contrast. Earlier in chapter 3, he 
the contrast is between those who are of the false circumcision, circumcision of the flesh, versus those who are the true circumcision, circumcision of the heart. Notice what he says in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about circumcision. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision, as some texts say, some translations, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. So from the outset of chapter 3, he's showing the contrast between those who hold on to their circumcision of the flesh versus those who are the true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. Later on, as he continues in talking about his own testimony, the contrast is again, this time between having confidence in the flesh versus having confidence in Christ. Notice how he puts it. Who glory in Christ Jesus, continuing the end of verse 3, and put no confidence in the flesh, though, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Notice he mentions confidence in the flesh three times. And he goes through his list of religious heritage for why he needs to have confidence in the flesh or that he could. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had every reason to have confidence in the flesh. Verse 7, but, here's the contrast. Whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of whom? Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Contrast, confidence in the flesh versus Confidence in Christ alone. Circumcision of the flesh versus circumcision of the heart. And in our text, the contrast is this. Enemies of the cross, citizens of heaven. Outline is very simple as I walk you through this text. First, we will describe who are the enemies of the cross and then the citizens of heaven. And then list three characteristics of each group that Paul highlights in our text this morning. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Very interesting phraseology that Paul chooses here. If the friends of the cross of Christ are characterized by self-denial, then obviously enemies of the cross will be characterized by self-indulgence. If the friends of the cross of Christ don't love the world but boast and glory in the cross, enemies of the cross love the world and don't boast in the cross. They can't say, as Anitra beautifully sang for us this morning, the power of the cross. They can't do that. But what group is Paul referring to based upon the background here? It could be one of two groups. It could be the Judaizers, which I briefly highlighted at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 3. The Judaizers were first introduced 
in the early church in Acts 15. And they said the following in Acts 15, verse 1. They said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. To them, it wasn't Jesus plus nothing. Yeah, it was Jesus plus circumcision. In order to be saved, they said. A very significant error in the early church. The Jerusalem Council meant to confront confront that in Acts 15. And it was so serious, Paul doesn't hold back. Look what he calls them in verse 2 of our chapter. Our missionary Tomek preached from this text. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. No less than three times, Paul warns him to look out for these Judaizers because they add to the cross of Christ. Circumcision. He warns him three times. Now, because they add to the cross of Christ, the Judaizers, saying that it's not enough, you need circumcision, would they be characterized, as Paul says in our text, as enemies of the cross of Christ? Sure, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. But in our text, this is not who Paul is necessarily referring to. Another possibility, which I believe in, as I will show you, who is he referring to specifically as the enemies of the cross of Christ, are the Gentiles who lived a licentious lifestyle. Gentiles who lived a licentious lifestyle. What do we mean by licentiousness? Paul describes it well in in the book of Romans. Paul says in Romans 5, sin increased, where sin increased, what abounded or increased all the more? Grace. So these licentious Gentiles would say, as Paul would say the opposite in Romans 6, what shall we say then? (laughs) Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? These licentious Gentiles are like, for sure we should. Paul says, may it never be. God forbid it. Their thinking is, and their lifestyle is, well, if more sin abounds in more of the grace of God, <laughs> let's continue. But why is, he re- why is he referring to these licentious Gentiles here as the enemies of the cross of Christ? Two things that are highlighted for us. Notice how he describes them. The description that he uses, first of all, of them. In our text, Verse 19, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. Because of the description, we know that he's referring to these licentious Gentiles. But secondly also, this was a normal pattern for the Apostle Paul. If you study any of his other epistles, he would do this normally. He would highlight as bookends, he would transition from talking against those who were legalists, like the Judaizers, to those who live the licentious lifestyle. And that's what he does here. In the beginning of the chapter, he's warning them about the error of the Judaizers, this legalistic mindset that you need to add circumcision. And now he talks about the other end of the spectrum, those who live a licentious lifestyle. He did this again in the book of Galatians. Don't turn there. But in the book of Galatians chapter 5, he again does the same thing. First, he warns them against the error of legalism. And he says at the beginning of Galatians 5, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Legalism. Then, later on in chapter 5 of Galatians, like he does here in Philippians, he says in verse 13 of Galatians 5, For you will call to freedom, brothers, listen here, 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So because of the descriptive phraseology that Paul uses, and because this was his pattern in a lot of his epistles highlighting the two extremes, legalism and licentiousness. But I want you to notice also, before we looked at the three characteristics of these enemies of the cross of Christ, notice Paul's heart for the Philippian church in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and I'll tell you how, even with tears. At the beginning of this epistle, Paul said in chapter 1, verse 8, I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. What a pastoral heart. He was weeping over them because of these, that they would not follow in the footsteps of these licentious Gentiles. And notice what he says in verse 18. It wasn't just a few who did this. He says, many. And obviously, it's something that he's not addressing with them for the first time because he says right in our text, of whom I have often told you, he says in verse 18. It's not the first time he's addressed this issue with them. So what are the three characteristics of the enemies of the cross of Christ as it's found in our text? Number one, the first thing Paul says about them is, verse 19, their end is what? Destruction. Their end is destruction. Paul is not talking about annihilation here. He's not saying that once we die, we're annihilated, we're destroyed. That's not the biblical term for destruction. The rest of Scripture bear witness to this. The words of Jesus in particular, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. I saw a tattoo uh, this week. Somebody with a nice weather was wearing a nice tank top and they were tattooed some lettering on the back, on their back. And it said this, I don't care that the gate is narrow and straight. I'm the master of my own fate. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 46 of this destruction, he referred to it as, quote, everlasting punishment. Jesus again, in Luke 16, when he talks about the rich man and Lazarus, it says there, the rich man, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. That's not annihilationism. That's conscious torment. And Luke 16 continues, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. Paul says, first and foremost, the end result of these enemies of the cross of Christ is destruction, is eternal conscious torment. Number two characteristic of the enemies of the cross of Christ. They're characterized by carnal appetites. They're characterized by carnal appetites. Notice the phraseology that he uses. There's two things here that he says which highlight their carnal appetite. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. Their God is their belly. Literally, that's their appetite. 
Paul uses the same phraseology in Romans 16, verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Same idea here that Paul uses in Philippians. Their glory is in their shame. He takes this terminology, this phraseology from the Old Testament. In the book of Hosea, chapter 4, verse 7, God speaking through the prophet Hosea, God says, the more they increase, the more they sin against me. I, God, will change their glory into shame. This is their appetite. Their glory is in their shame. There is no shame or guilt for their sin. They follow after these things. This is almost Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, who exchange the glory of the creator to worship the creature. So God gave them over and gave them over and gave them over until the very end of chapter 1. It gets to the point it just spirals down and down and down. In the end of Romans chapter 1, which illustrates what Paul is saying here, that their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. He says in Romans 1 verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Why? Because their God is their appetite, their carnal appetite. And their glory is found in what? Not the cross, but in their shame. But if that wasn't enough, number three characteristic of the enemies of the cross of Christ, their minds are set on earthly things. The end of verse 19. Their minds are set on earthly things. What are these earthly things? I like to think of them the way Jesus described them in the parable of the sower, better known as the parable of the soils. The third soil, the seed fell amongst the thorns. Jesus said this in Mark 4. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but here are the things of the world. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Their mind is set on those things, the things of the earth, the cares of this world, riches, Desiring for other things, earthly things. The enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, eternal conscious torment. They are characterized by carnal appetites, and their mind always thinks about earthly things. Verse 20. Don't you love that word? But, contrast, as we highlighted, all of chapter 3. Citizens of heaven, before we get into the three characteristics that are staying juxtaposed to the characteristics of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, this is a unique word, citizenship. It's only found really here and earlier in the book of Philippians. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And notice how it is used there. It's a unique word, not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Philippians 1, 27 Paul uses it again there, a different form of it. He says, notice, in our ESV that we are using, only let your manner of life, that whole phrase, same form of the word citizens, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
The New American Standard puts it this way. Only conduct yourselves, Philippians 1.27, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Greek, the literal Greek, it, mean, it, say, it would say this. It says this. Only behave as citizens. Behave as citizens. Philippians 3, you're citizens of heaven. Philippians 1.27, behave as citizens. That's who you are. The word means literally a colony of foreigners. A colony of foreigners. His audience, the Philippian church, understood that when Paul wrote this. Why did they understand it? The Philippians were a colony of Roman citizens far from Rome. They understood what Paul was talking about. Listen to when he first went to Philippi, how they understood this in Acts 16. And from there, Paul went to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. This is in Philippi now. They're saying we as Romans... We're a colony of foreigners. We can't accept these customs. Paul knew this when he wrote this to the Philippian church here in chapter 3 of Philippians. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul highlights this about himself. When they had stretched him out for the whips in Acts 22, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned, referring to himself? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he, Paul, said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So Paul, the author, the human author of Philippians, his audience, the Philippian church, they understood when Paul used this word citizenship, a colony of foreigners, what he was talking about. You see, Roman citizenship carried with it great privileges and honors, but it also carried great responsibilities. We are a colony of heavenly citizens in contrast to the cross, those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. William Barclay writes it very well when he describes what the word citizenship means. He says, quote, The great characteristic of these colonies was that wherever they were, in our case, Philippi, they remained fragments of Rome. Roman dress was worn. Roman magistrates governed. The Latin tongue was spoken. Roman justice was administered. Roman morals were observed. Even in the ends of the earth, they remained unshakably Roman. Paul says to the Philippians, quote, Just as the Roman colonists never forget that they belong to Rome, you must never forget 
that you are citizens of heaven and your conduct must match your citizenship. Close quote. If you are a true Christian saved by God's grace, yes, you are a child of God. Yes, you are a follower of Jesus. Yes, you are a sinner saved by grace. But Paul is saying you are a citizen of heaven. We are foreigners far from our homeland. In extra biblical usage, this term citizenship meant a capital city that kept the names of its citizens on a register. In other words, for us who are citizens of heaven, we're registered citizens of another place, namely heaven. What are the characteristics of citizens of heaven? Three, that are juxtaposed in contrast to those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. The first one is citizens of heaven set their minds on heavenly things. That's the immediate contrast, is it not? Citizens of heaven set their minds on heavenly things. Those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul finishes in verse 19, their minds are on earthly things, but our citizenship. We set our minds on heavenly things. The mind is very important to the Apostle Paul in his writings. Notice early in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, our chapter, verse 15. Notice the word mind again. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Citizens of heaven think, set their minds on heavenly things. And this is very significant. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the gospel of the glory of Christ. Paul again said elsewhere in Romans 8, the importance of the mind. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In Romans, it continues on the importance of the mind. Romans 12, 2, be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Citizens of heaven set their minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Richard Baxter, Puritan, put it this way. Quote, a heavenly mind is a joyful mind. This is the nearest and truest way to live a life of comfort. And without this, you must needs be uncomfortable. Can a man be at a fire and not be warm? Or in the sunshine and not have light? Can your heart be in heaven and not have comfort? On the other hand, what could make such frozen, uncomfortable Christians but living so far as they do from heaven? Oh, Christian, he says, get above. Believe it, that region is warmer than this below. Secondly, second characteristic of a citizen of heaven. Citizens of heaven, number two, await the return of their Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, with great eagerness and much anticipation. 
Citizens of heaven await the return of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, with great eagerness and much anticipation. In our text, the word, you'll see it there, verse 20, and from it, from heaven, we await. It's a compound word in the Greek of three words. The base word, dechome, literally means to receive kindly, to welcome deliberately and readily with much anticipation. The prefix that goes before it means to withdraw one's attention from everything else so that your singular focus is on that which you're waiting to receive. In this case, the Lord Jesus Christ. A singular focus, a laser-like eyesight on the Lord's return. And it has a third word, ek, which just intensifies the meaning of the word. Paul's point is, as a citizen of heaven, we eagerly, with much anticipation, without being distracted by everything else around us, await with singular focus the return of our Savior. Why? Because that's where we're citizens of. We're just aliens and strangers here. And notice what he says in our text. From it we await who? A Savior. Why does he mention the term Savior? Because this is the consummation of our salvation. The consummation of our salvation. We're saved in eternity past if we're chosen of God. We're saved in time here as we turn by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately we're saved in the consummation of our salvation when he returns in glory. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As surely as Jesus came the first time at his incarnation, Paul is saying here, it's a guarantee that he will come again. Last month with our children, we were going through the I am statements in the Gospel of John, partly because Pastor Steve had been going through the Gospel of John. And uh, one of the questions that, I wrote, that arose was, as Pastor Mike was talking about, the distinction between faith and faithfulness from the book of Hebrews, right? That Christ is our faithful high priest. So the girls were asking, well, what, how do we distinguish that? So I said to them, well, faithfulness is exclusively of God and of Jesus Christ. We, as humans, try to be faithful, but we fail. Jesus is always faithful. God is always faithful. That's part of the core of his being, his nature, his attribute. And so what we need is faith in him who is faithful. So then we happened to be that night in the I am statement in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But in the context as we were reading, the very beginning of John 14, Jesus says to the disciples, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And that is Paul's emphasis here when he talks about awaiting eagerly a Savior. He will come again. He is coming, for sure. And the last and third characteristic of a citizen of heaven. Citizens of heaven are guaranteed their future glorious transformation citizens of heaven are guaranteed their future glorious transformation this is a great portion notice that's in verse 21 
We await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, he's the one who's going to transform us, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's interesting that the first characteristic of the enemies of the cross of Christ that Paul highlights is their end, which is destruction, eternal conscious torment. But for citizens of heaven, he waits till the third characteristic to highlight their end, that we'll be transformed to be like his glorious body. Paul knew the glory of being with Christ. He knew of that glory. He highlighted it at the beginning of this epistle in Philippians chapter 1. He says this, beginning in verse 20. He knew the glory of being with Christ. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain on in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul knew the glory of being with Christ. Did he not say in 2 Corinthians, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord? But now in our text in verse, in chapter 3, he highlights the glory of not just being with Christ, of being like Christ. We'll be like him, like his glorious body. Second Corinthians, again, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly bodies. Our souls are redeemed, those of us who are trusting in Christ alone. But what Paul is talking about here is the redemption of our bodies. What will that be like? Just turn briefly with me to Luke 24. Paul says here in Philippians 3 that our bodies, our lowly bodies here on earth will be like his glorious body. So the question is, what was Christ's glorious body like? Luke 24 will give us the answer. This is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, background here. They're talking, Jesus appears out of nowhere, asking them, what are you talking about? And they're looking at him perplexed. Are you, in my vernacular, out of your mind, you haven't heard what's going on here? About this man who was, was crucified and was resurrected, supposedly, and they, they were not allowed to see who it was until he broke bread with them. And then they realized who it was, and they said, we're not our hearts burning within us. And so they go back to the disciples, to the 11. And I'll pick it up in verse 36. Now here we're highlighting to show in Philippians 3 that our bodies will be like his glorious body. Verse 36, so the two go back to talk to the disciples and tell them about them seeing the risen Lord. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. The doors were closed. He just appeared. John actually adds the Gospel of John. On the evening of that day, to highlight, John says, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, (laughs) Jesus just appeared. We believe one of the tenets of our Christian faith is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Jump to verse 39 of Luke 24. He says, Christ does, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Did he not say to Thomas in the Gospel of John, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Continuing in verse 41 of Luke 24. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Verse 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Our bodies, our lowly bodies, are going to be transformed to be like Christ's resurrected body, glorious body. And how is he to do that from our text? How is that even possible? People might ask, what about those in church history who were martyred? Who were eaten by lions? Who were burned at the stake? How is that going to happen? The end of verse 21. By the power that enables him, Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, to subject even all things to himself. Citizens of heaven have a guarantee of our future glorious bodily redemption, our transformation to be like his glorious body. This is the consummation, as I said earlier, of our salvation. This is where Paul has been going in chapter 3. Earlier where I read in chapter 3, he was talking about his conversion in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We talked about his justification. He was not trusting in his own self-righteousness, but in the righteousness only of Jesus Christ. And now we have full glory, the redemption of our bodies. This is assurance. Whom God saves, whom he justifies, he sanctifies, and he will bring to glory. What is the implication for you and me this morning? Some questions to think about. Paul's distinguishing two groups of people. Those who claim circumcision of the flesh versus those who are circumcised by God of the heart. Those who put confidence in the flesh for their salvation. Those who put confidence in Christ alone for their salvation. And in our text, those who are enemies of the cross of Christ versus those who are citizens of heaven. Question, this morning, are you an enemy of the cross or you're a citizen of heaven? This past week, did you think of heaven and the fact that you're one of its citizens? Did you think of heaven at all this past week? I understand with our lives and the mundane and day-to-day stuff of our lives that we're involved, we have to take care of things and we think of those things. But how often do we think of our heavenly home? Did you contemplate the glory of heaven? Because that's what it's going to be like. 
not so much because of the streets of gold or the pearly gates, but because of the Shekinah glory of the one who will be there. Set your mind on heavenly things. Are you eagerly awaiting and anticipating the return of your Savior? It's like when you haven't seen a loved one for a long time and you can't wait. You go to the airport till you see them cross those doors and there they are. The one who came the first time at his incarnation, those of us who are citizens of heaven, are we eagerly awaiting his return? Do you set your mind on earthly things or on heavenly things? I close with the words of Richard Baxter. Quote, There is no man so highly honoreth God as he who has his conversation in heaven. And without this, we deeply dishonor him. It is, not, is it not a disgrace to an earthly father when the children do feed on husks and are clothed in rags in a company with none but beggars? Is it not so to our heavenly father when we who call ourselves his children shall feed on earth and the garb of our souls be but like that of the naked world and when our hearts shall make this clay and dust their more familiar and frequent company who should always stand in our Father's presence and be taken up in his own attendance? Sure, it beseems not the spouse of Christ to live among his scullions and slaves when they may have daily admittance into his presence chamber. He holds forth the scepter if they will but enter. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and thankful for your word and for your Holy Spirit, the divine author of Scripture. Pray, Father, for anyone here this morning who might be at odds, an enemy of the cross of Christ, that by your sovereign grace that your Holy Spirit would do a marvelous work in their lives to open their eyes and to change their hearts. And for those who by your grace have, we've already been saved, Father, help us to think of heavenly things. Help us to think of the glory of heaven and to eagerly, with much anticipation and much expectation, await the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.